Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast podcast. Thanks for joining us. This week, Pastor Nathan is teaching out of Galatians chapter 2. Grab your Bibles, and let's jump in. If you would, grab your Bibles, open them up to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 11, and then if you would uh, go ahead, this is the last time I'm going to ask you to, but stand with me as we read through the Scripture, and then I'll let you sit for the really most of the rest of the service. So Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, we'll read together. <clears throat> the Word of God says, now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy." But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus." that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh flesh shall be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain." Go ahead and be seated. I'm going to pray, and then we will jump in. So, Father, we just want to give you this time here and now as we open your word. Father, we ask that you speak to each one of us. We know that there is something that you have to say to each one in this room, that you have brought us all here for a purpose, Father, that you desire to speak to us, that you desire to know us to have relationship with us. So Father, regardless of where we individually are at, I just ask that you speak through your word to each of us this morning. May this be a time that honors you and blesses you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so Galatians 2, verses 11 through 21. Now last week, we wrapped up the book of 1 Corinthians. This was exciting for us because we had been there for quite a while. Pastor Ryan uh, wrapped it up. As we went through chapter 16, we saw several details that spoke to intimacy in Paul's letters. And one of those details that we highlighted last week, and we even talked about in our home group discussion, was the fact that Paul addresses so many people by name, and that's one of those things that always kind of stuck out to me personally. 
See, it's easy to get wrapped up in the doctrine that Paul teaches, the message that he's trying to relay. So when he gets to those particular portions of his letters, we're reminded of the relationship behind the letters, the intimacy behind those letters. We're reminded of why Paul wanted to take the time to write each letter, and we're reminded of the love that went into everything that Paul wrote. And it's actually many of those details, those little minor details, that help us kind of put the puzzle of Scripture all together. These details remind us that these were real people that interacted with one another, that there were relationships and those relationships took work, that there were obstacles that arose, that life was difficult in the midst of everything, but God was faithful and the gospel was being spread throughout Judea, Samaria, and all of the world. We also see some of the relationship nuances between Paul and the other apostles. We see how he interacts with the different pastors and ministers of these areas. In 1 Corinthians 16, I particularly find what Paul wrote to Timothy and Apollos, or about Timothy and Apollos, somewhat funny. If you remember from last week, he's basically saying to the church in Corinth that when Timothy comes, they need to cut him some slack, right? We know that Timothy was a young guy. Some of the older guys had been hassling him. Paul's basically writing and saying, hey, give him a break. Cut him some slack when he comes to you. And then Paul expresses that he tried to get Apollos to come, but Apollos straight up told him, no, I'm not going to go on that trip with you. So we don't get any more of the context, but we are reminded that these are real people. They are doing God's work, but that there are actual human elements. There's actual human interaction going on in each one of these relationships. And this is a good reminder for us because the work of Christ uses all kinds of different people with different personalities. Not everyone at every time is going to see eye to eye. Uh, some of them are going to still be used by God and they will complement each other and they will fulfill His purposes in spite of those differences. And this is good because here in this room, we are called to minister with one another and here in this room, we have some weirdos. Let me just say that. And we have to minister together. I'm not calling anyone out by name, but we are called to love and to minister with one another just as Paul and these other guys were. So in the letter to the Galatians that we're uh, diving into here, Paul speaks of Peter and Barnabas by name, and he fills us in on some of their inter interactions that took place in Antioch. This letter is more than likely the first letter that Paul wrote, and as many of his letters would become, this particular letter is focused on false teachings that were creeping into the church. So we're picking up somewhat peculiar place. If you were reading along with me, you saw I jump right into where Paul is calling out Peter, and not necessarily in a good way. <clears throat> but he's a, Paul is addressing some particular verses or some particular issues, and as a, a, a point where we're going to be launching from, we can see how these particular things can impact our church today. So now instead of this being what I would call, I guess, a traditional sermon, as I've been going through the process of, of praying and preparing and all of those things um, this week, I really felt like this was going to be more of just a, a family talk today. Okay, so there's been times when my wife Holly has been out of town or out of the, the house or whatever, and I've had to grab all of the kids, and we've had to go through some, 
some issues and discuss some things and be like, hey, you know, you guys got to cut your mom some slack. You know, I guess kind of like Paul did with Timothy. But you got you to gotta lay off mom a bit and you know, all this kind of stuff. And when I was a, a teenager, I would do that with my siblings sometimes. Like mom would be out of the house and be like, hey, guys, you got to cut her some slack. And unfortunately, that usually led to my sister rolling her eyes at me and my brother being distracted and not really paying attention. And my own kids kind of treat the conversation the same way now. But I'm hoping, my prayer is, that as we today have a family talk, that you receive it a little better than my own children or my siblings did when I was younger. So that is the, the heart behind this. We're just going to kind of deal with or, or discuss a few things. I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you um, to move forward as a family this morning. So the title of this message is Gospel Culture. We're going to take a look at how we as a body of believers or we as a family here at CCSC, can develop a gospel culture. So I want to start with just a couple quick definitions for you. When I say the phrase gospel culture, what I mean is simply this. Our actions as the body of Christ, or our actions as the church, fully display the life and power of Jesus Christ. Another way to say this is that everything we do here centers around the gospel. And just to be clear, every time you hear me say the word gospel or the phrase good news as I'm going through all of this, I want you to have John 3.16 and 1 Corinthians 15.3 and 4 in mind. So we can be very clear, I'm not adding, I'm not taking away, I'm, I'm giving you the gospel. What I'm saying is what Scripture says in terms of what the gospel is. I want everybody just to, to be clear with that from the beginning. So John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then we dove into 1 Corinthians 15 a, a couple months ago. But for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. This declaration is what the Christian life is all about. When we think of the Gospel, our thoughts should be consumed with what Jesus did on the cross, but not only what he did on the cross. If all he did was die, then his death meant nothing. The gospel is more than just paying the debt for sin. The gospel is the declaration that Jesus conquered sin. He conquered death and he reconciled those that believe this to the Father. It was through the resurrection that the gospel was complete. When we speak of the gospel, we are speaking of the finished work of Jesus Christ. The debt of humanity paid in full, access to a relationship with God the Father, granted to anyone who puts their faith and trust in the work of Jesus. In John 19, while he is hanging on the cross, Jesus said the phrase, it is finished. John writes this down in the Greek as a single word. And this, I would argue, is the greatest Greek word that there is. If you're only going to learn one Greek word as an American that doesn't speak Greek, that one word should be tetelestai. It is finished. The debt is paid in full. So when we are talking about the gospel, we are talking solely about the work of Jesus Christ. It's nothing that you did. It's nothing that I did. It's nothing that the apostles did. 
It is simply the work of Jesus. But the work of Jesus, Jesus, excuse me, should produce two things in believers. It should produce gospel doctrine and it should produce gospel culture. Gospel doctrine is what we just discussed. This is the knowledge of the truth of what Jesus did. But it goes further than just knowledge. When we receive gospel doctrine, we surrender our lives to the Lord. We accept His truth. We accept Him. This is our personal transaction or our personal transformation with God. We are justified by faith through God's grace and are granted eternal life through the blood of Jesus Christ. Gospel culture then should be what is created when a bunch of people that have accepted the doctrine of the gospel gather together. The gospel should compel each one of us to share this life-changing experience with anyone who will listen. Gospel culture is a culture that is completely sold out for Jesus. Everything that is done points to him and what he did. Everything that is said is meant to bring life and to lift others towards him. Gospel culture transcends human barriers. Jew and Gentile worship together. Male and female worship together. Conservative and liberal worship together. Now, the first two you guys were okay with. <laughs> that third one, some of you started to squirm. It transcends human barriers. Gospel culture is produced because a group of believers is so in love with their Savior, they aren't focused on anything else other than that relationship. If they come across someone who doesn't have the relationship with Christ, they are desperate to share it with them. If they come across another believer that is struggling in their relationship with Christ, they are desperate to love them through those struggles. There isn't time to focus on anything else. Within a gospel culture, literally nothing else matters. In Acts 4, we see the first example of a gospel culture. Verse 4, picking up, or chapter 4 and verse 32, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. Now the point of this message is not that we should be selling our belongings and forming a commune. So please don't misunderstand that. But throughout history, there have been several examples of gospel culture. And again, we saw one here at the beginning of the church in Acts 4. But during particular revivals, during crusades, Billy Graham-type crusades, not like sword-cutting crusades, those weren't really gospel culture, but Billy Graham crusades, right? Not the crusades. Individual churches, the Jesus People movement that are... Uh, our roots are established in. I recently listened to a, a podcast 
um, where Cheryl Broderson was kind of sharing her experience as a, as a teenager when Pastor Chuck Smith and the, was there and the, the Jesus People movement was in full swing. And to listen to some of the characteristics that defined that time and that period, um, it, it truly defined a, a gospel culture where people were simply desperate to give the gospel to others. And they were desperate for anybody that wanted it to receive it. The gospel culture is created through a genuine hunger for the Lord. It can't be manufactured or faked. And believe it or not, a gospel culture is not what we as believers default to. It isn't just natural. It is something that has to be developed individually in our hearts and as a group. It's a, a, a process. So the very fact that we have to discuss this reveals that it isn't our standard or our norm. And the problem, the reason why that isn't our default as believers, is sin. Sin is still present in our lives. We still have our flesh, our human nature, our sin nature that we must contend with. Paul knew this very well. In his first letter to Timothy, he referred to himself as the chief of sinners. Later in the letter to the Galatians that we're looking at now, Paul draws a contrast between the flesh and the spirit. In Romans 7, Paul refers to himself as a wretched man. And this is after he has walked with the Lord for some time. And I want to read that one to you because these are, are verses that have always stuck out to me. Romans 7, verses 21 through 25. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin." So another translation would put it this way, basically, I do the things that I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I do want to do. Wretched man that I am. <clears throat> so we have a sin issue even as believers and it creates a barrier for creating a gospel culture. If we go back to our text and we pick up here in verse 11, let me just read the first couple of verses again for you. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of, circum of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Paul is speaking in a, of an event that isn't recorded anywhere else in the New Testament. But this would have taken place more than 17 years after Paul's conversion on the road to D Damascus. So this was some time into the church and uh, the church being established, Paul's ministry being established. But we don't have any other details about this. But it is a heated event. A seasoned Paul and the Apostle Peter in a public confrontation. Peter came to Antioch and was fellowshipping with all of the believers, Jews and Gentiles alike. 
Not only was he fellowshipping, he was eating with the Gentiles. In essence, he was practicing the principle that in the Lord there was no Jew or Greek. There was just simply the body of Christ. Until a group of Jews from Jerusalem arrived. Then Peter began acting differently. And his actions ultimately ended up influencing Barnabas and the other Jews that that were present. Peter would no longer eat with the Gentiles, and his influence or his sin carried over to Barnabas and others. See, so since this was a public action, Paul found it necessary to call Peter out publicly. Wearsby points out that Peter's actions violated five essential doctrines of the Christian faith. He had damaged unity with the body. He essentially was adding the law back into the gospel, and his actions were in essence stating that God's grace wasn't enough. Why did Peter do this? Peter, Peter, Peter. Fear. He gave into his flesh, and he allowed sin to dictate his decision. Peter knew what the right thing to do was. He had been doing it. God had made it clear to him on several occasions prior to this that there was only one body of believers, that it was one, there was one body of Christ. But in this instance, for whatever reason, Peter succumbed to his sin. John Stott in his commentary said this about Peter and the other Jewish believers that followed him. He said, Their withdrawal from table fellowship with Gentile believers was not prompted by any theological principle, but by craven fear of a small pressure group. He still believed the gospel, but he failed to practice it. This is the difference between gospel doctrine and gospel culture. He knew the gospel doctrine, but he wasn't living it out in his life in this particular moment. See, it isn't a lack of belief Peter understood and he believed the doctrine. He simply chose not to follow or not to practice it. Does that resonate? It resonates with me. Because this is a a very clear reminder that when we sin, as believers especially, but when we sin, it is a conscious choice. It is a choice that we make counter to what we know we should do. There is no, oops, I accidentally sinned. It is a choice when we sin. Martin Luther said, no man standing is so secure that he may not fall. He's not talking about losing salvation. He's talking about falling into sin. If Peter fell, I may fall. If he rose again, I may rise again. We have the same gifts that they had, the same Christ, the same baptism, and the same gospel. We have the same forgiveness of sins. And this is why we love Peter. Why when I say Peter, 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 we chuckle. He was involved in some of the most miraculous miracles, and he was used in absolutely mighty ways for the spreading of the gospel. And then he was involved in some of the most harebrained, desperate acts of the flesh, that are recorded in Scripture. It was one way or the other. It was all of the above. There was no middle ground with Peter. So Peter serves as both a caution, but also as an inspiration for any believer. 
I relate to Peter. I know many of us have had conversations where you also, many of you relate to Peter. There's one minute I'm ready to lay my life down for the gospel, but then the very next minute, I'm ready to deny that I even know the Lord. But this is why we're looking at this portion of Scripture when we're talking about gospel culture. Peter had been, been involved in Pentecost. He was involved in the establishment of the church. He was with them when they all tried to fit into one accord. Ah, see, some of you got it. It's like a 50-year-old joke. Ever since a Honda Accord has been around, that's been a joke. But okay, some of you got it. Some of you will wake up like in a few hours and you'll get it later. He was with them from the beginning. He's experienced all of these things. I know my, my daughter's telling me my dad jokes have to give it a rest, but they're just there. I'm sorry. Peter had lived immersed in gospel culture. But in Antioch, he had stopped practicing what he was preaching See, he probably could have stood up and given a, a perfect gospel presentation or a sermon, but he had stopped practicing what he was preaching. His beliefs had been suppressed and his actions were not aligned with those beliefs. In modern terms, we would say that Peter held a biblical worldview, but his actions were not being dictated by that view. His actions were being dictated by a cultural view that threatened his biblical worldview. So in that particular instance, we can, we can say thank God that Paul was present and that he was bold enough to confront Peter. So look again in verse 14. We'll read through basically the rest of the chapter again, highlight a couple points as we go, but or the rest of this portion. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Verse 17, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Now I've read through that twice, and each time I get to verse 20, I get goosebumps. I don't know if you guys experience that verse the same way, but we'll talk more about it in just a minute. But every time I get there, I feel like chills through my whole body and goosebumps. So I'm going to pull out just a couple points here of Paul's rebuke. In verse 14, notice they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. 
Paul was compelled to respond because Peter's actions were perverting the very gospel that had changed all of their lives. We could argue that this wasn't Peter's intention, but ultimately our intentions don't matter when we sin. Damage was being done, and it could have been avoided through submission to the gospel rather than responding in fear. And then in verse 16, Paul introduces the doctrine of justification through faith, and he is reminding Peter, he's reminding Peter and the Galatians and us that it is by no work of our own that we are justified. He is reminding us that the gospel, the very act that justifies us, was a work of Jesus and no one else. He is reminding each of us that the gospel matters and that it matters daily. See, if we, have, if we as believers refer to the gospel as a past tense event, we will fall into the same trap that Peter highlighted here. If we look at our own salvation as something that only happened in the past, we can fall into this same trap. Remember that our salvation is threefold. We are justified, we are being sanctified, and one day we will be glorified. The only way that we are sanctified, which is just a fancy way of saying we are set apart, is if we have already been justified, and that only happens through faith in what Christ has done for us. Peter compromised the truth. He lacked grace. He fell into legalism by suggesting that the law was still necessary. He distorted the gospel, and that's exactly what legalism does. It takes the simple gospel of Jesus Christ and it adds something to it. And this is why it's so important for us to remember that our salvation comes from Christ alone. That it is by faith alone, through grace alone, that we have been reconciled to Him. For my fellow theologians or theology nerds, I just said three of the solas. Right. Sola Christus, Sola Fida, Sola Gratia. I can't pronounce them correctly in Italian, so that's as good as I get, but three of those there. Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. <clears throat> we start to think that there are two groups of people in this world. We can start to think wretched sinners is one group and Christians is another group. And while this is technically a correct statement, I believe that it tends to miscategorize or it tends to lend itself to pride. See, it's easy for a believer, a Christian, to begin to focus on doctrine, to grow in knowledge, to know and learn truth, but then to become prideful in their Christian walk. It's easy to begin to think that I have somehow played a part or am playing a part in my salvation. It's very easy to become religious as I walk with Christ. It's very easy to become legalistic as I walk with Christ. It's very easy to become religious or legalistic as I walk with Christ if those categories are wretched sinners and Christians. It's very easy to become a Christian that lacks grace or lacks empathy and ultimately lacks love. 
I think we see this here with Peter. His beliefs didn't change, but his daily life was not reflecting those beliefs. So instead of saying that there are two groups of people, wretched sinners and Christians, I would challenge you to rename that second group. Or in your own mind, kind of think of it this way. Group one is wretched sinners. Group two is wretched sinners saved by grace through faith. The distinction between these two groups isn't anything that any of us has done. It is the finished work of Jesus that determines which group you are in. I'm going to play a video, and I I thought about just kind of discussing it, but I figured I would slaughter it if I did that. And so, um, because this is just a a family talk, I, I play videos for my kids all the time, or you know, whatever. So we're, we're just, I'm going to play a short little video from Alistair Begg, three minutes, that kind of really sums up our role in our salvation. And I, I'm using that phrase kind of tongue-in-cheek. But watch the video, we'll come back and we'll chat about it. Without the preaching of the cross, without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. So that to go to the old uh, Fort Lauderdale question, if you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, We've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. And what an immense, I can't can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you 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 were cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, And yet, and yet you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What what do you mean you don't know? Well, because I don't know. Well, you know, excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor ranger. So we have just a few questions for you, first of all. Are you are you are you are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> the guy said, "I've never heard of it in my life." And and what about? Uh, let's just go to the doctrine of scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, "On on what basis are you here?" And he said, "The man on the middle cross said, I can come.' <laughs> now, now that's the." That is the only answer. That is the only answer. And if I don't preach the gospel to myself all day and every day, then I will find myself beginning to trust myself, trust my experience, which is part of my fallenness as a man. 
If I take my eyes off the cross, I can then give only lip service to its efficacy while at the same time living as if my salvation depends upon me. And as soon as you go there, it will lead you either to abject despair or a horrible kind of arrogance. And it is only the cross of Christ that deals both with the dreadful depths of despair and the pretentious arrogance of the pride of man that says, you know, I can figure this out and I'm doing wonderfully well. No, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God that just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's why Luther says most of your Christian life is outside of you in this sense. That we know that we're not saved by good works. We're not saved as a result of our professions, but we're saved as a result of what Christ has achieved. <clears throat> so, a couple months ago, we were in a, a pastor's meeting, and Pastor Ryan shared that with the rest of us. And I had never seen it prior to that. And it's resonated with me ever since. The man on the middle cross, he's the only reason any one of us can claim salvation. It has nothing to do with our own works, our own attitude, our own behaviors, simply because he said we could come. So see, if we can somehow daily remind ourselves that our position of saint is solely the work of Jesus, then we have no reason to begin to puff ourselves up. And this is the point, and really this is the celebration that Paul is making when we get to verses 20 and 21, when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for it is righteousness, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Now one of the things I've shared with you guys before is I go through all my um, notes and, and I'm prepping for any sort of a message, I will typically have my wife Holly kind of read through everything. One, to make sure that I just don't sound stupid, um, that all my thoughts are clear and hopefully f somewhat concise and that my grammar is good and all that kind of stuff. But then there's other times she'll just kind of feed little tidbits. We'll have discussions throughout the week or, you know, this really started to uh, develop this particular message was laid on my heart when we were driving to Las Vegas. You guys remember that? Rowdy, my son, Christmas morning. So Christmas Day, we're, we're listening to a bunch of stuff. We're talking about this. We're on our way to Vegas. So we've had conversations over the last several weeks. And so then she'd kind of have some input for me. And I asked her, I said, read through this stuff and um, you know, give me, give me some of your thoughts. Give me some, some notes. And I asked her out after she did that, she put in a note here and I'm like, I need to just read this because what she said, <clears throat> I'm already starting to choke up, but it choked me up in my office about these verses. And so she, she just wrote a little note. I'm not sure what you're planning to add here, but I can tell you what this verse means to me. She says, I, I can tell you why it's 
my verse, her verse, and why I have it tattooed on my body. And if you know, Holly's got a little tattoo right on her wrist. It says Galatians 2.20. She simply says, because it's not about me. And then she goes in to, to add this little note. She said, I was dead in my transgressions. I am still dead. My life now is Christ's. I have no claim to it. It's his. Whenever it becomes about me, I remember that me is dead. Christ in me is who is alive. The life that I live now is only through faith in Jesus. Only through the knowledge that he allows me to be anything for his kingdom. I can't add to that. I can't take away from that. I can only acknowledge and be grateful for it and keep pushing down the flesh that wants to bring me back into a place of death. I'm only here because the man on the middle cross said I could come. I serve because the man on the middle cross said I could serve. I have gifts because the man on the middle cross said I could have them. I only live by faith in Jesus who said I could come. I told her I didn't need to add anything to that. I'm just going to read what she wrote because it was super powerful and, and it impacted me. See, Paul didn't rebuke Peter to shame him. He didn't call him out in front of, of everyone else to ultimately make his point. Paul rebuked Peter to restore him, to bring him back to a place of submission, to remind him of the gospel so that Peter's hope could be restored, that Peter's love would be displayed. And it's with this daily reminder that we are able to go from being a church that believes the doctrine of the gospel to a church that truly lives a gospel culture. So, just a couple more, really just a couple more pages here. Hey, I went short. The last several times I've talked, I kept it nice and tight, right? Ryan's gone. I'm going to go maybe a little late today. It's okay. We're fine. But I'm going to run through it pretty quick. Again, gospel culture. Our actions as the body of Christ fully display the life and power of Jesus Christ. This isn't something, again, that we can program or implement, Pastor Ryan and the, the rest of us as pastors can't just start preaching the gospel or preaching gospel culture into existence. A gospel culture starts at the individual level. Each one of us, our daily response to the gospel in our own lives, and it grows from there. Two of us are together and overwhelmed at the gospel and at the work it's done in our lives. Then two of us becomes four. Four of us becomes eight. Eight becomes 16 until we're an entire church building filled with people who understand that apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, we are nothing. But it's because of that saving work that we can have everything. And it's because of that saving work that is why we come to church, not to receive but to give. We come to church to love others, to bless others, to fellowship with others. We come to serve 
others. We come to encourage those that might be struggling. We come to share the good news with those that haven't received it. We come to confess our sins to one another. We come to set aside any barriers that may prevent the gospel from doing its work. We come to worship. We come to be in the presence of our Lord and our Savior. We come in expectation of God doing an amazing work. We come in humility and we come in awe of His grace. And this is where I challenge us now as a family. From Pastor Ryan down through the other pastors, through the elders, through many of you, we sense the Holy Spirit beginning to stir here at CCSC. Pastor Ryan's talked about this in several instances. We don't know what He has in store for us. But many of us truly feel that we are on the precipice of a great spiritual work. When we start talking about things like the third service or a school, spoiler, we're going to have an announcement about school coming up, so don't think that it's gone away. We'll talk about that later. When we talk about restructuring Wednesday nights, when we talk about doing any of those things, these are all in anticipation of the work that we believe the Spirit is going to do here in and through us. What that spiritual work is going to look like, we don't really know. But we do know that that type of spiritual work, that type of spiritual outpouring happens in the presence of gospel culture. And to be honest, we're not quite there yet. And I don't say that as an indictment. In a lot of ways, we're doing great as a family and as a church. When we went through... 1 Corinthians 16 last week, Pastor Ryan highlighted several of those. This is a church that is hungry for the Word. This is a church that is more than generous with our money and our resources. This is a church that generationally we blend well. The older and the younger are able to interact. I love that my children have like 14 pairs of grandparents because they don't have biological grandparents around, but so many of you have just adopted some of them. Not all of my kids, but some of them. But we blend well. We take care of our sick. We comfort those that have lost loved ones. There are lots and lots of ways that we are following the model of the early church. But we have to be honest. We have to be able to reflect on ourselves. To move to the next stage of spiritual growth, we need to be honest with ourselves and with one another. There are some things that we as individuals, and then ultimately us as a body, need to prune When Christ wrote the letters to the seven churches, there were areas of growth that were necessary. We aren't any different. We have areas that we need to continue to grow in. See, right now there's still people that come week after week that are lonely because nobody's taken the time to get to know them. There are people in this room right now that we will walk throughout the entire building to avoid. I know I'm guilty of that. There's a couple of you I see you coming. I turn the other way really fast. Let me just be honest with you. I'm not going to call out names. Hopefully you don't know who you are. (laughs) But I'm just, I'm being honest. There are people in our hearts that we genuinely don't want to be saved. They don't deserve it, is what we may tell ourselves. We don't deserve it either. There are people here that are afraid to confess their sins to one another because they will be shamed or ridiculed or might become the point of gossip. 
There are people here that are struggling with particular sins, and some of us might have attitudes, something along the lines of, well, it serves them right. We have several marriages within our body that are in jeopardy, and some of us believe that divorce is actually the best answer for those instead of reconciliation. Again, please don't misunderstand. I'm not throwing this list out here saying that a gospel culture has to be perfect. A gospel culture is far from perfect. Gospel culture is acknowledging that we are all sinners. Either sinners in need of a Savior or sinners that have already been saved by grace. But when we gather together, each one of us is desperately in need of encountering our Lord and Savior. Gospel culture is defined by our love, not our judgment. We certainly don't celebrate or embrace sin, but we bring those sins to the foot of the cross in anticipation of what the Lord is going to do. And this goes for the saved and the unsaved. See, too many times it seems that we're willing to overlook the sins of the unsaved, but then we condemn our brothers and sisters when they sin. And that's not how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be willing to get messy with one another. We're supposed to be willing to get messy for one another. As believers, we are supposed to love each other through our sin, to confess our sins to one another, to restore one another. First Peter 4.8. And I love that Peter writes this because I think of specifically of this encounter between him and Paul when he says, and above all things have fervent love for one another for love will cover a multitude of sins. Paul's purpose was to restore Peter, not to shame him, not to condemn him. <clears throat> Peter was able to write that because guys like Paul never stopped loving him. And they never let him be satisfied when he gave into the flesh. So how do we establish a gospel culture here at CCSE? Well, Jesus ultimately summed it up. John 13, 35. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We love one another through sin and reconciliation. We don't throw sin in someone's face. Excuse me. We follow the example of Paul and keep on pressing in. We never stop hoping for the gospel to change every life the way it has changed ours. And we live like we are changed by the gospel. Let me say that part again. We live like we were changed by the gospel. I know many of your stories, not everyone's story, but many of us, and we, we shared testimonies just a couple weeks ago, we are not who we were before Christ. He's changed each and every one of us. But sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we allow that thought to become complacent. Or we forget it, or we don't we do what Peter did here where it's a, a belief and it's an idea and it's something we understand, but we stop living like we have been changed by the blood of Christ. Each one of us 
must live like we are changed by the gospel. When we are daily living the gospel, love is what is produced. And it's through that love that a gospel culture will be established. And when that happens, we better be ready for the Spirit to move. Because He's going to move. I'm going to ask Josh and the band to come up. I told you we were almost done. That was only like 10 more minutes. That's good. But as we begin to reflect on this, and, and again, the heart is simply that we have all sinned. Some of us have acknowledged that and we've surrendered our lives to Christ. Some of us may still be holding on. Some of you might be sitting here and wondering what you're even doing in a church. You have no relationship with Christ. Someone drug you here. I don't know where everybody's at. But the bottom line is that each person sitting in this room has already been pursued by the Holy Spirit. You were brought here for a purpose. For us that know the Lord, for us that have surrendered our lives, you may know what that purpose is. Some of us may need to reflect on that and figure that out. What are we here for? Are we here for ourselves? we here to serve others? we here to live out the gospel in our life daily? And then for those that have no idea who the Lord is or why you're here, God is working on you already. He's brought you here in a place where you have to confront Him. The Bible tells us that today can be the day of salvation. That if you don't know the Lord, you can surrender your life to Him right here and right now. So I want to challenge you. <clears throat> if you do not know who the Lord is, if you've never surrendered your life, the Bible tells us we simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we are saved. I, I went through the Gospel in the beginning. Again, the point here is that you confess with your mouth, you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and you can be restored. And instead of being a wretched sinner, you can be a wretched sinner saved by grace through faith. Thanks for listening to this week's study. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this study. Stay tuned for our next series coming soon.